Hello and welcome to You Really Shouldn't Have. Joining me on this episode is stand-up comedian, writer and podcaster, Paul Carenza. We talk all about his career in comedy, both in stand-up and as a writer on shows such as Not Going Out and Miranda, his love of Christmas and, of course, the worst gift he's ever been given. So, Paul, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, in terms of performing, was it always a big passion of yours from an early age? It was, uh, yeah, I've, I've had a bit of a, a mixed one, I suppose, between being a writer and a, being a performer. And uh, I was doing school plays and things like that. But I suppose also for the uh, for the stand-up side of things, I have a distinct memory of, of telling uh, a, a joke or, or being funny or at least getting a, a, getting a laugh from an, uh, an adult's neighbour in a way that wasn't just, you know, laughing at a eight, nine-year-old, however old I was, uh, to humour them, but actually he was yeah, clearly connected with them and got them laughing at something. I can't remember what the joke was, but clearly it was hilarious. <laughs> but I remember that distinctly, that feeling of like, oh, that was good. It feels good to make people laugh. And um, I suppose it went from there, but I was never like, like life and soul of the party thing, but always that that guy who was like maybe lobbing, lobbing in a quick, um, a, a quick aside and ducking down so no one could quite see where it came from so it keeps you out of trouble at school that doesn't it <laughs> so in terms of performing stand-up i mean when did that sort of interest first begin and what do you remember of your early performances well yeah it was uh, i did drama school and uh, and it was at there that really i discovered you know i tried to act and it turns out i can't act I, it was an expensive <laughs> way to discover that but i um I'd, I'd enjoyed watching stand-up and at that point i'd enjoyed uh, writing comedy sketches and I'd enjoyed um, performing in comic plays and things, but I'd never thought of mixing all those things together to try a stand-up gig because it felt like that's a bit of a leap too far. Like I thought, I'll act, you know, acting in comedy sketches, you've got a bit of a barrier between you and the audience. You've got the other cast, you've got the fact you're playing characters, but to to be me on stage and to tell jokes, that felt a little bit like, oh, that's, that's a, why, I'm not that sort of person. Why would I want to do that? But I, I did it as part of the end of my drama school thing. I, I, I sort of, um, they, they kicked us out of drama school and said, go, go and be actors. But they said, anything you can do that is different, put it on your CV. If you can sing, dance, roller skate, clean driving license. I thought, I can't do any of those things. <laughs> so um, I, I, I saw this stand-up comedy evening class advertised. And I thought, well, let's, let's try it once, put it on the CV. And, and I just loved it, fell for it straight away. And uh, yeah, that's what, 20 odd years ago and a thousand or, or, or more gigs since. So uh, yeah, just that was it. I fell for it immediately. Incredible. And, and during those those 20 years, have you had any sort of memorable heckles or interactions with audience members that have sort of stayed with you? The trouble is that actually, yeah, the, yeah, the, the it's it's often the bad gigs that do stay <laughs> with you. And I wish it weren't so. I wish that the memorable gigs were, were the, particularly the, the great ones. But so often it's, uh, I mean, the one that particularly stands out was there's a, a club in Ballum, uh, the Banana Cabaret, which is, it's, it's a great club. When it's when it's great, it's great. And when it's not great, it's awful. And and I they booked me very kindly to do one of my first ever 20-minute sets. You know, I've done the open spot thing. And they said, come and do 20 minutes. So I did it. And it went great. It went nicely. So they said a couple of weeks later, they said, we've had a cancellation. Do you want to come back and do another 20 minutes? So I, I went along, but of course I had the same 20 minutes set and it was only like two weeks later and some guys down the front row who were there every week, it seemed they'd had a few drinks and they started heckling my punchlines because no. they'd seen me only a week or two before. <laughs> and of course I, 
what do I do? I haven't got another 20 minutes set. I didn't have the flexibility to just do set B, you know. And uh, and after about five minutes, I'd not got a single laugh. They got loads because they were being, <laughs> I was just doing the setups. They were doing the punchlines, you know. And um, yeah, that was pretty rough. And uh, but worse than, than heckles as such, you could hear this slow wave of, of chat from the back of the room as the crowd slowly realized like it wasn't going to work out we might just have a as well just have a conversation for 20 minutes and uh yeah that's that's worse than a heckle just being ignored you know at least if they're heckling they're listening to you and hating you but to um to just ignore you and chat to each other oh yeah i've had a few of those gigs thankfully not many so that's okay yeah, thankfully <laughs> not yeah. stick out. <laughs> now for in 2002 you won itv's take the mic award which I, I guess must have been quite an experience for you what are your memories from that yeah, I was. Uh, there was. I, I don't know if there, if it's the same now, but certainly when I started, there were quite a few um, new act competitions, and this was one that happened to be televised. ITV it was late night ITV, and and I think at that point TV hadn't quite worked out how to present stand up in a mainstream way. So it's before Live at the Apollo, uh, before your kind of shiny floor stand up experience, and so stand up on TV was quite late night and studenty and post pub and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think it was Tuesday night at about midnight it was on. And, uh, and in fact, by chance, I that obviously this has been an unusual year for gigs. Uh, yes. So I've had, I normally do three a week. I've had two since March. And I've only had one of those was a, a proper indoor comedy club gig. And by chance at that gig, so last week or so, uh, Omid Jalili was was headlining. I was comparing. So I introduced Omid, you know, great act. And he's done all these big Hollywood movies and he's a fantastic comedian. And I've not seen him for years. And in fact, he um, he reminded me that he was one of the judges for ITV's Take the Mic. So I I'd kind of completely forgotten that he he said, oh, I was telling those other judges, you've got to get got to get Paul Carenza. He's the winner of this thing. And um, yeah, it's thanks to all me. I've, I've had a career in it. So uh, it's nice that the most recent gig I've had and probably the last for some time, he was there again to remind me of how it all started. Talking of, of the coronavirus and, and sort of the, the difference that's made to, to live performing this year, what have you been doing with your time to sort of fill that void that you haven't had to fill with the live performance? Well, yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, it's been a, a tricky one to get your head around and get your diary around, really. Everything obviously just vanished overnight. Yeah. But, uh, but I've always been a writer as well. So hopefully that gives me that a little bit of flexibility. Although generally the stand-up which is more regular, sort of funds the writing, which is a bit more up and down. So I've, I've had a few commissioned bits of work, so not going out, which which is ironic during lockdown, because <laughs> none of us were going out. Um, I've been writing for that since the first uh, series and been writing that in lockdown and they're filming it now, socially distanced and all that sort of thing. Uh, so we've done a bit of, bit of that. And um, I did a bit on Spitting Image, the new Spitting Image oh, uh, yes. show as well. And, and other than that, my main thing I've been uh, committing myself to was uh, doing a podcast called The British Broadcasting Century, because um, for years I've been fascinated by the origins of broadcasting, the origins of radio. And the more I read on it, the more I realised that the there were a few brilliant, marvellous key characters who kind of hated each other and squabbled and had very different ideas of what broadcasting should be. And I thought, well, let's tell their story. So I've been trying to write this as a book and as a TV drama uh, a pilot script is sort of out there between a few producers at the minute and hopefully, uh, you know, bubbling away there. And then I thought I'd, I'd do this as a podcast because it's an audio 
story. And uh, and so it's been fun to it's been fun to delve into that. But also, I think you know, amid a crisis like that, it's been re- like this. It's it's been really reassuring to just go back a hundred years and go. Let's think about the nineteen twenties. It was a simpler time, and uh, so that's been my go to place really. Um, just disappearing into nostalgia for this rather troublesome year. Incredible. And touching on the TV writing, how did you first get into that? Well, it's been a really linear route, actually, for me, the writing stuff. So my first ever writing paid work was uh, for radio. It's for the news headlines, as it was then on Radio 2. Uh, the BBC have always been really good at having at least one open door show, as they call it, that anyone can write for who wants to. And at the minute, it's it's called Newsjack on Radio 4 Extra. But when I started, it was Radio 2's news headlines. And you get to know the producer on that eventually, and then the producer of that moves to the news quiz, and so you can go with them right to the new, for the news quiz. And this went back and forth over several different shows, different producers, and then one of them was the Lee Mac, uh, the Lee Mac show on Radio Two, and he wasn't particularly famous at the time, but he was sort of known. Uh, I knew him, knew of him through the comedy circuit. Never met him before, and it was just right place, right time because the lift doors opened at BBC Radio Entertainment. Lee Mack burst through, and as, as he always does, he was joking all the time. So he steps out the lift and he said, I have a sketch show. Where are the writers? <laughs> and in the corner, I just went, uh, yeah, I'll do it. You know. And my writing partner at the time was in the toilet. So he didn't get the job, and I did. So it's as simple <laughs> as that. Right place, right time. And if you need the loo, hold it in, because you never know when the next opportunity is. And then, of course, uh, he went off and did not going out. And and I grabbed his coattails and went with him from Radio Land to TV Land. And, uh, and there we are. In terms of writing scripts uh, for TV, for you as a comedian, is that difficult ever to see someone getting laughs from your material, if that makes sense? Oh, totally. Absolutely. It's a horrible experience. But uh, you, you have to just comfort yourself with the fact that it's you know, you'd rather work than not work, wouldn't you? So, um, and in fact, once or twice on not going out, I've written into the script one of my jokes from my stand-up set. Ah. And then you watch it go out, so to speak, and um, and you see how they get a big laugh from it. You go, oh, that's lovely. That's my joke. And then you sort of think, oh, I would have done it a bit differently. In fact, I've been doing it differently for the last 500 gigs or 200 <laughs> gigs or whatever. And um, yeah, so there's that slight sense of how you might have done it, especially if it's a, a joke like that that I've done many times before. And um, yeah, then I suppose you need to retire it because you've you've sold it to TV. So <laughs> it's, it's a tricky one, but you know, it, it's, it goes with the territory. You, you know, you'd rather be doing it than not doing it. So uh, that's the way of it. But yeah, the egotist in me certainly says, yes, I should be doing all. TV should just be full of me doing everything. Absolutely. <laughs> but um, that's not quite the way it's going to work. You know? I want to touch on some bad gifts then, Paul, and I understand that you had quite a few unwanted CDs from a certain namesake. Yeah, well, the the thing is, my uh, my nan, bless her, used to always, as a thing, every year, get me a a Paul Young CD, right? And the reason for that is that my name is Paul Young. So Paul Carenza is the stage name, but my real name is Paul Young. But because of the 80s singer Paul Young, I can't be on stage as Paul Young because people, you know, equity have rules and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, so yeah, but growing up, my nanny thought, yeah, well, you know, you, you're called Paul Young. You might like a Paul Young CD. And every year I would get another one. It would be a record to start with. Then it was a cassette and then it was a CD as the, and if she were here today, she'd be, you know, sending me vouchers for streaming software. I'm sure whatever it might be to get another Paul Young <laughs> CD. So, yeah, they kept on coming, often repeated. Often it was this, if you didn't have a CD out, it would be the same one as last year, generally speaking. But um, uh, you know, and I, 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 I don't mind his his big big songs, but you know, several years in a row it was a little much. 
<laughs> Fantastic. And have you ever confronted anyone about a terrible gift that they've given you? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've not, it, it's, it's a tricky one. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's not, okay, okay, it is a fairly terrible gift, but I, the, the, the long version is, long story short, is I did bargain hunt, right? Oh, yeah. It's all links together, I promise you. I, it links to Christmas. I did the bargain hunt um, comedian special about, I don't know, 10 years ago now. And uh, you know how it works. You get three items that you buy in a fair, you set it at auction, uh, you try and make a profit up against another team and whoever makes the, the most profit, or in our case, loses the least, you know, so both teams made a loss. We made less of a loss than the other team. So we're winners, but we're losers. Um, but by being on the show in the first place, we're losers. So, you know, there you are. Um, but the one item that made us a profit was a Darth Vader money box. And we bought it for £4. We sold it for 14 uh, at this auction in Lincolnshire. And that was fine. Forgot all about it until eight months later, uh, having won the show and it had been broadcast and you forgot all about it. And at Christmas that year, then opened up a present under the tree it was a Darth Vader money box. And my mum said, oh, yeah, it's like the one I saw on, you know, that you sold on Bargain Hunt. And I was, I said, no, mum, I'm trained now with these eyes. This is the exact Darth Vader money box that I sold in Lincolnshire, seven counties and eight months ago. How is it now here? And she guiltily said, well, I, I was the one that bid on it. So um, the only reason we won Bargain Hunt was my mum was at the back, you know, bidding on the items that we had, really, which is technically illegal in That's UK auction law. But it won us the show, so uh, mustn't grumble, I suppose. But it's still, it wasn't a great present, but it was great in that it won us Bargain Hunt, so I'll take that. I wanted to touch a bit on Christmas, Paul, because I know you're a self-proclaimed Christmas nut and you've got, mm. you've got the book Hark, the Biography of Christmas. So what prompted the decision to put a book together about Christmas and what did you learn along the way? Oh, I learned loads. I learned, <laughs> I learned so, so much um, that it would be impossible to dilute it all. But I, I love that I've always loved Christmas. I'd always loved trivia and historical trivia, which is partly why I'm then doing this podcast about broadcasting history, uh, which actually came from that podcast idea came from the Christmas book because I was looking into the first broadcast Christmases and how um, the first ever um, BBC newsreader then became uh, the first ever children's TV host who became the first, uh, the star of the first Christmas drama on radio, The Truth About Father Christmas, it was called in um, December 1922. And all those little cultural ways that we suddenly get um, things that we still have with us today. So I, my favourite thing really from it was about how like Dickens and the snow, the fact that really Dickens wrote about a snowy, cosy family Christmas, because when he was a child, it was the end of the mini ice age and it snowed for the first, uh, for seven of his first eight Christmases. Wow! And because of that, because of his snowy childhood, and then of course it stopped snowing because the mini ice age was over. And, and in fact, the Christmas that a Christmas Carol came out in 1843. It was one of the warmest Christmases on record. It was about 14, 15 degrees out and about. So um, people reading A Christmas Carol were surrounded by bright sunshine in December, <laughs> but reading about, oh yeah, I remember how Christmas used to be, snowy and white, and, and we used to go in and huddle by the fire and all that sort of thing. So that idea of nostalgia for a Dickensian Christmas, people even then were feeling that as they were reading it. And maybe that's part of one of many reasons why it was so well received, you know, and, um, and things like that. So that's in a way, you know, when we look at a snowy Christmas now, that feels like how a Christmas should be a white Christmas, but 
um, Dickens and Bing Crosby and all of these things, it all just adds up over the years, doesn't it? Because I, I think, in fact, you know, we're nearly getting more white Easter's than white Christmases now. <laughs> Paul, wrapping up, if you had to go right back to the beginning of your career and buy yourself a gift to help to get where you are now, what gift would you give yourself? Oh, my word. I'd Probably a, a better joke book than the one I've currently got. You know, it's... Uh, um, <laughs> the thing is, I mean, with, when you have a career, any career in the performing arts is you you can never fully plan for it. I mean, look at this year. You know, who could have seen this coming? Really? Oh, absolutely. But, um, it's, um, you know, and I've, I found my old joke books the other day. And I went through them all. And, um, you know, in the time of like lockdown, you get a time to go through these things. I haven't got a clue what the code words mean. I used to write down random words here and there. I don't know what it means now. I'm sure it was funny at the time. But years ago, uh, as a teenager, I wrote a stand-up routine when I was about 14, 15, as a Microsoft Works document, even before Microsoft Word, Microsoft Works, this was, and saved it onto a 3.5-inch floppy disk. And uh, it's, I don't know where it is now. I'd love to know. So if I could buy myself any gift, I would, I would, I would pay good money to have that 3.5-inch floppy disk with, my, with what I thought was hilarious. My, I wrote out this entire monologue, no shorthand. I wrote every single sentence out. And I'd love to go on stage now and just recite this monologue that clearly the 14-year-old version of me thought was the funniest thing on the planet and i've got a funny feeling that it's going to be better in my memory than it would be if i saw it so maybe it's for the best i can't have that one and paul finally where can people find out more about you and what you do uh, the main thing i suppose is you know i, I do have a website but at facebook and twitter really, isn't it it's the social media more so than websites but paulcrenza.com or you know find me on facebook or twitter all these sorts of things and uh, yeah i'm trying to be active on both and youtubes and instagrams and you know i'm trying to keep up basically i've not done the tiktok thing yet but it's a matter of time before i um you know do what most 40 year olds do is uh, join these social media things and then all of the young people then leave because we've made it uncool so uh, that's the plan well paul it's been great to have a chat with you thanks so much for stopping by the show no worries. Thanks, James. Thanks again for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast service to make sure you never miss another episode. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Bad Gifts Pod, as well as online at badgiftspod.com.